Hey everybody, welcome to the Highlight Show. This is a show within our show where we sit down and talk to people doing really cool stuff. It could be someone starting a restaurant, it could be a youth group, it could be somebody who has just gone through something hard and has a really cool story to tell. We sit down with them, we pick their brains, and we glean what life lessons we can learn from their journey. Give it a listen. up here so can I be totally honest and that I'm incredibly nervous about this interview why so like I was I was totally I was totally expecting AJ to do the interview and I was just I was ragging on him the whole time I was like this is my teacher like you got you got to impress her it's like daddy issues I was like I just I just need that validation from my philosophy teacher that I don't even I'm not think of you as my student I keep thinking I went this is Brandon I went to school with I, I keep forgetting you were yeah, we only had one class actually together. Do you remember the, was, do you remember the class? I remember It must have been Carlson or something. It was, Carlson. yeah. Religion and Justice. And that um, was my very last class there. Was it really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Last class. I didn't get the PhD from ASU because they kind of kicked me out. <laughs> well, I um, after that semester, I got I got a full-time job and then I met my husband and I had the comps to do and the dissertation. And so I somehow they were like why don't you just start working on the dissertation and do the comps later? So I did. And then like the years went on and they were like, hey, you need to finish up this year or you need to leave the program. And I was like, oh, okay. I thought I had been there for seven years and I had been there for nine years. <laughs> and so they're like, make a plan. And I, I made a plan for finishing. I just really had to do comps and finish the dissertation, which I had been working on. Okay. And Linnell Katie said, no way. There's no way you could finish and work full time. So you're gonna have to quit your job. And I had just gotten hired at PVCC full time. And I was like, I'm gonna leave my dream job for a year of school to finish it? No. So I left. But I finished my PhD at Faulkner University, which was an online, uh, live okay. online, Great Books Humanities program. It was so awesome. Really? They let, they let me keep my um, dissertation topic I changed it slightly, but I didn't have to do a whole lot of work because I already had it. So that was really a blessing to, to be able to finish it there and do what I wanted to. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll do the official introduction here. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast, everybody. We're here for meaningful conversation and delicious beverages. So we're here with Kelly. Hello. Fitzsimmons Burton, right? Mm -hmm. That's okay. Right. Um, so we normally start off with a beverage, which you went with... I went with the Merlot today. Yeah, not bad at it's all. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, and it helps with the shoulder injury, for mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> yeah. At least, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is it any good? It is good, yeah. Yeah? I'm not like a wine buff or anything, okay. but this is pretty good. All right, I can get behind yeah. that. Uh, the coffee that they serve here is from the roastery of Cape Creek, uh, which is a pretty well-known roaster. He works just down the road and... He's got a really cool system with the honor system where he just leaves coffee out yeah. there and you just show up, you drop 10 bucks and you take a bag of coffee. It's it's kind of an interesting thing. And yeah. I, I do it all the time. Do you really? Yeah, there was one time I uh, I didn't have $10, so I left my business card and I said, I owe you $10. <laughs> and I came back and paid it. 
I was always wondering, like, I was like, I wonder how well the honor system works. Like, I think it works for Cave Creek people. I, uh, you're probably right. In Cave Creek, it's yeah. This, this area is unique. In yeah. A, oh yeah. I think in most places, like there are like Cave Creek characters out here. That's well said. That's yeah. well said. Because um, it's hard for me being from Arizona the whole time, and so when I come to Cave Creek, it is very much caricature of the West, <laughs> it right? It very much is. It I, is. I joke that it's like, it's got its charm, don't get me wrong, but this is definitely where Canadians come during the winter oh, yeah. to be in the Wild West. And you're yes. like, it's not really the Wild West, but yes. uh, you know, as long as you're enjoying it, I'm good. I <laughs> sometimes forget that this is sort of a retirement community. One, one Monday okay. I was off from work and I went to the Walmart, which is where a lot of people go, and so I realized, wow, I'm the youngest person at the Walmart right <laughs> <Yes>. now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, so, where are you from, actually, Kelly? I'm from New Jersey, but my parents moved here when I was about five, so I don't know. I guess I'm kind of a native in that sense. I mean, that's five is pretty early. I yeah. mean, you're not going to be formed by Jersey yeah. too much. Not really. My, my whole extended family's there, and okay. I miss them. We, we visit when we can. So nice. Yeah. How culturally how jarring is it between the two? It's very jarring for me. <laughs> uh, yeah. The East Coast is just a different pace. I mean look at Cave Creek, it's so chill out here. Yes. The East Coast is a little uptight to me. But I like it for a while, like a, a week. Right. And then yeah, I wanna come back to my quiet desert. It's busy and yeah. That's what, when we went to New York, the best advice my friend gave me, she's like, don't take it personal. Nobody, you know, like out yeah. here, we joke about it. Like if somebody were to brush your shoulder, it's because they're trying to fight you, right? Because there's <laughs> lots of space. So nobody brushes your shoulder. Yeah. In New York, they don't have any space. So they yeah. brush your shoulder. So she's like, they're not trying to fight you. They just have some place to go. You know? Yes. All right. So I can forgive yeah. that and move along. I love and New York City. When I go there, I feel like, oh, this is another home of mine. I just don't live here. It was surprising how, like, I thought I was going to be curled up in a ball from culture shock, never having been in a city like that before. But we fell in love with it. Yeah. Like, it was... You gotta so, love New York City. Yeah. We definitely want to see more cities over there. Right? We, it's just, like you said, it's very different. Very different. Okay, so you've been here most of your life. What do you... Let me think here. What kind of things happen, do you think, that put you on the path towards philosophy huh well um i grew up in north phoenix i went to paradise valley high school and uh my mom would drive me to high school past paradise valley community college while they were building it and she always said that's your college you're going to go to that college <laughs> and um, i didn't really know what college was okay i mean was i just knew in your family like no you I'm, first I'm first generation college? yeah okay, okay. So I didn't really know what that meant, but I just knew that was my college. So after I graduated, a lot of my friends went to Arizona State University right away, but I wasn't prepared. My GPA wasn't high enough, so I went to community college, which is good because I needed time to figure out what I wanted to do. So I started there uh, as a geology major, and then I tried anthropology, and then I was like, this just isn't for me. And I dropped out for a while and followed my favorite band around, and that wasn't for me either. And so my friend had taken a philosophy class, and she was like, you need to take this class. This is, this is for you. 
So I took the philosophy class, I enrolled again, and it, I just loved it from the from the very beginning because in that class I learned about reason and I fell in love with reason and the possibility of knowing things. So before that I was an atheist and very skeptical and cynical, as many in my generation were at that time. So I I was like, whoa. I don't you think it's know very things? different now. Yeah, I, I think don't, I don't think it's different. Either. Yeah. So I I fell in love with philosophy with the idea that you can argue using reason and you could know things, really basic things. I like that. Okay. Okay, and so then what took you from falling in love with philosophy to wanting to teach? Oh. Well, I went on to Arizona State University and when I was transferring the counselors at the community college told me oh you can't get a job in philosophy you should pick another major and minor in philosophy and I was like okay because I was like I have to get a job oh because <laughs> I had lots of jobs I mean sure all kinds of different jobs but I was like oh a job job so I majored in literature English literature okay. and minored in philosophy at first but I really love philosophy so much that I just double majored for my BA and I went right into the master's degree for philosophy at Arizona State University and I had some really good friends in the program with me and we just kind of did it and continued talking and discussing and I just loved the whole process of discussing ideas. I fell in love with ideas and I wanted to live my life that way. Now. I didn't want to teach right away. As soon as I graduated with my master's degree, my mentor from the community college asked me, do you want to teach a class now? And I was like, no, no way. Because I was a real introverted person and I had no public speaking experience. I couldn't imagine getting in front of people. So I took about a five year hiatus from from school. I, I worked at Grand Canyon University uh, doing a lot of different jobs. One, the last job there was uh, working as the nighttime supervisor of the library, but it was Little Grand Canyon, not the one we have now. Nobody yes. came to the library at night. And I'm sitting there thinking, I have a master's degree and I have this job babysitting books. I should probably think about teaching. And so I called up my mentor and I said, you know what, I think I'll try teaching. And he gave me a nighttime class. That meant once a week of Philosophy 101, and I thought, if I mess this up, no one will really know, except for those students. Right. But I think I might have been one of those students. No, you weren't in the first one. No, the first one was like... Because when I was in your class, you were really building the resume. Like, you worked full-time. I may have been new, but it was... This was uh, 2005, a nighttime class. There was a guy named Steven in that class. Who just asked question after question after question? I thought that's. Well, I graduated ASU in 2008. Okay, well, it would have been an early, early class yeah. then. But I was just okay. like, no, right. I'm not going to do it. But then once I did it, I was like, oh, this is fun. Yeah. This is great. Mm-hmm. And so I just started to get more courses after that. I started to teach as many as I could teach without uh, being full time. And then I decided I should probably get a PhD if this is what I'm going to do with my life. Um, I was single. I had time, so I got into the PhD program. And, I, sure. and at the time, in Maricopa, 
a lot of the philosophy teachers also taught religious studies. So I thought, I have the master's mm -hmm. in philosophy, I might as well get the religious studies degree so I could teach both and be more marketable. Yeah. And so uh, that's probably when I met you. Yeah, that, my degree was in religious studies, and it was definitely, even in Grand Canyon, I was there for a year, it was always kind of a, a second-hand degree, per se. So like your teachers were never religious studies teachers. I think I had one religious studies teacher really everybody else was something yeah. something else teaching a class that applied to the degree yeah so it was very very off there but no so yeah uh how important do you think the role of, of having that kind of group of friends during your master program because like it sounded like that conversation yeah start probably started in the class and carried on elsewhere like it what did, kind of role did that i i think my group of friends my community was key in my succeeding in terms of being faced with, I mean, in philosophy, you study so many different ideas and a lot of skepticism. Nobody could really know for sure. And so I fell in love with philosophy because I wanted to know. But when I went to ASU, I was being told, no, you can't really, we don't do knowledge here. And so I would go and talk to my friends, hey, what do you guys think about this? And they were going through the same thing. And so we were able to go, well, let's think about what we're learning and critique mm -hmm. it. And so I, I, I'm still friends with them today. I mean, right. you'll see Dr. Anderson, he and I are doing everything together. Mm -hmm. That's because we started together 25 years ago. So we're still friends. Right. And there are other uh, professors that are just kind of like, let's do this together. Because if you look at what Socrates... Um, was doing he was conversing with people in the public and then he had these followers or students and then those students were talking together too so I think it probably is something when you have a common goal and you want to do something together you, you need friends for that you do yeah you need community because yes. it's very easy um, again me coming from a religious perspective it's very easy to be kind of uh, not even from a religious perspective I'm not particularly like a good arguer, right? And so it's very easy to be bullied into right. an opinion that you didn't hold before and not that right. has any reason. You know, so like yeah. having a community, to, a safe place basically, to exactly. take an idea and be like, all right, I just got beat up on this. Like, what are you guys saying? What, how's this going back and forth? Yeah. And that's kind of me and AJ had that when we, when I joined RCIA for the Catholic Church, right? We met for Taco Tuesday every week. And I was like, all yeah. right, this dude said this, I think he's crazy. And then just work through it yeah. over tacos, you know, things like that. That's exactly it. <laughs> so I mean, my friends and I that. text all day long. There's like a good little group of us. Yeah. And it'll be something you see on the news. Hey, what do you think about this? And then we just sort of converse. You just keep, we don't you even just see keep, each other. Yeah. I never see them. I just text with them and, and, and the conversation keeps going, you know? Yeah. I think I also enjoy that you brought up uh, addressing skepticism. Things yeah. like that because... The thing that won me over in your Philosophy 101 class was, because I'm a big old nerd, right? And so every time the typical college response is, how do you even know this is real? Yeah. And stuff like that. And you'd be like, oh, so we're in the Matrix. And I was like, yes. That totally hit my nerd heart right there. Yeah. I was just, I was so on board yeah. right at that point. It's funny because so. I think the Matrix came out in 1999. Mm -hmm. And so my students now, they... They were born around that time, and so they're like, "What's the Matrix?" What? I'm like, "That's your homework. Go watch it." <laughs> you hurt me right here, right, now. right in the no. heart. You hurt me. I know. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Um, 
Boy. We covered a whole lot of stuff there, and I did lost yeah. my lost my outline. Okay. So being, you talked about kind of becoming a college professor. How how difficult was that process? Because, uh, like you said, being marketable <laughs> with a philosophy yeah. degree is hard. I mean, I have a religious studies degree, and it took a bit of creativity for me to take that degree and make it marketable. Yeah. In an interview, right? So, and I know being a college professor is not in there's only so many spots right and how hard is that process to get into that i have to say i think it's a combination of the grace of god and a lot of hard work and the willingness to persevere yeah because um i had a mentor who was willing to show me the ropes and he taught me things like how to make the schedule for for the department, how to uh, be on a committee. He taught me all the things that I needed to, I guess, be marketable. Besides just I have this education and I've done this teaching experience. Um, but I did a lot of things in addition. I taught... Um, as an adjunct instructor for 12 years before I got a full-time job. So I taught high school for five years. I Was that with Good Hearts? It, great, hearts. great Hearts. I taught okay. two years at Glendale Prep, and then I taught at a private school for two years. I guess that, I think I taught there for three years, yeah. But the, the, the great part about both of those schools is they allowed me to help develop curriculum so I got experience with starting from the ground up building something new curriculum development and uh, I did things like um, uh, accreditation with the uh, higher learning commission so that was really helpful when I started the community college so when I got hired I already knew how to do everything they needed they wouldn't have to train me in anything and I think that was a big important piece that my mentor saw ahead of time what what skills besides teaching and uh, education I would need and he kind of right showed me the ropes and there's a lot more to it than oh just showing gosh. up to a classroom and talking about there stuff. is and there really is I think what we lose track and uh, communication uh, just knowing how to communicate with people yes. knowing how to grade I mean, nobody teaches you this. When you teach college, you're like, there, there's the room, go right. do it. Especially when you're in a, a college objective because it's yeah. not math, yeah. right? But grading is would be a challenge too. Like, there yeah. has to be something yeah. there. That, here's how you make exams. Here's how you right. fairly grade exams and essays. And I also had a really great department chair when I was at PVCC who also showed me how to do things like assessment Our school is very big on student learning and how to assess student learning, so um, my department chair, um, Dr. Cristiano, she showed me how to do that, and I'm doing it still. So there are a lot of things you have to know to to be a professor. I kind of think teaching is 50% of what I do, and then there's all the other stuff. But if we don't do the other stuff, the college won't go. So... That's another beautiful thing about the Maricopa Community College system is that there's this sort of shared leadership where we do service and we do administrative things too. So you have to have those skills. So it was, uh, you said about 12 years before full-time? 12 years. It's a long run. It is. It was, 
It was getting really stressful. Well, I was going to say, it requires some perseverance there. Yeah, it was getting stressful. This is where I, I... The stressful part for me was teaching high school because I don't know that I have the personality to actually do high school for the long term. I think each level has a... There are certain yeah. people... It's a vocation, and each it level is. has that. Like, it I have is. cousins that teach in the lower grades. And it makes sense because they're like the most even keeled, gentle spirits you'll ever see. Yeah. That's not me. Yeah. You know, like I can't do that. And so like I think if you were to put them in a higher grade, not that they couldn't, but that gentleness can kind of be yeah. run over by a high school student. Yeah. Or, you know. So I think each person has their lane that fits them best. I think you're right. And I, I'm glad for that because we need lots of different people engaging the students. Um, but after five years of teaching high school, I was very tired, and I did this gig as a, a missionary for a year with a group called Ratio Christi, which is a, um, an organization that is trying to take uh, reasoning about Christianity to the university. So I was the regional director for Arizona, starting new clubs, and then I was the, the chapter uh, the chapter organizer head at Arizona State University. Okay. And we had really good discussions for maybe about two years. I did that, and then I got the full-time job. So I was like, eh, maybe this is a conflict of interest. So I I didn't want to do ministry stuff and teaching in the public sphere right. at the same time. So uh, I was able to get some other friends to take that, and they're, they're growing it now. So. so then what was it that pushed you through the 12 years like what is your favorite thing about teaching that says I got to keep going through this and through this and through this until it happens you because know, of this thing I think college the college experience for me was really fun once I found philosophy and I found what I wanted to do with my life I just wanted to teach and talk ideas for the rest of my life and I like living my life out in semesters uh, there's like this nice <laughs> rhythm you have but um, I, I thought, you know what, I, I love my students, I love my subject matter, and I want to do this every day of my life. So I think if I just persevere, something, something somewhere will open up to use my talents that I've been developing over these years. Okay. Okay, so it's just that that's just you, and this is you being you. Yeah, and I think... to do anything else would be... I did a lot of other things and they just weren't they weren't the right thing now I did recently start a publishing company and I could see myself doing more of that too in the future I love books so much I love every aspect of making books and birthing books Mm -hmm. not just writing them I like writing too but I like getting other people's work out there so yeah and there's always different seasons that yeah and this very well could lead to that. You yeah. Know, you never know how that yeah. works out. I'm, I guess as an adjunct for 12 years, I had this uh, sort of scarcity model of, of mm-hmm. like, I need to figure out what I could do with my life besides this if this doesn't work out. So I'm, I'm still sort of stuck in that mode. Like, what it's are my backup? Trait, yeah, what are my backup talents? So I think I still do that. Like, right. ooh. You could make a thousand dollars a book on typesetting. I should learn that skill. <laughs> so, yes. uh, okay. So, on a more selfish level, me being a dad, right, and you seeing kids coming in at 
that early stage, right? Are you still teaching philosophy 101? Yeah, I see area? very young students. I have high school students. We have dual, a, a large dual enrollment in, um, what do you call that, concurrent degrees where they're getting their high school and, and, gaining and their AA at yeah. the same time. So, yeah, I have. So you're seeing a lot of that. What is the biggest gap that you see right now? That it, When you see these kids, you're like, man, oh. I wish okay. you had this. This is and you don't get it. This is the hardest thing for me. They they go to school, but I I'm not sure they have a coherent education. So when they get to me and I start talking about history, they don't see the flow of history. They have no background knowledge. And it's almost like I have to teach philosophy and history together because you can't just do ideas. There's a there's a history Context. of ideas. Yeah, so I feel like sometimes oh, ideas lay on top of other ideas. You gotta yeah, have that background. Okay, I got. What you're I saying. feel like they come to me not knowing history, and I don't mean like dates and stuff, eras, right. big movements. Like what is the Renaissance? What is the Reformation? What is the modern period? Why are we in the postmodern period now? They don't have like this, and I didn't either. I, I have to admit, I didn't, and so I taught myself history. But now that I have that, I feel like that's a super important piece. So I'm incorporating more history into my classes so that when they go to their, their next classes, I know I had to learn it for the upper division courses, graduate courses. Right. So that's the biggest gap I see. Of course, there are problems with like reading. Not They could read words, but complex concepts and processing it and interpreting it I think is a little bit difficult for my um, my intro students so I'm trying to teach those skills too I agree how to read critically how to communicate how to form your own reasoned beliefs yeah. not just react all the time but this is what I think and why I think that's a little bit difficult for people yeah I agree because it's I think there's a difficult part. Like, that's a good one there because right now it's hard to do that. Yeah. Like, you're not allowed to have an opinion yeah. and, and a reason. Um, like, it would be an ideal situation is you can believe whatever you want. We could sit down and talk and hear the justifications for it. But yeah. now it's not that way. It's kind of you either think this or you don't think that. And yeah. You don't always have to work it out for yourself. Uh, yeah. Do you think it's been like that for a while or is this a new thing in your experience? Um, I think it is a road that we've been on for a long time and yeah. I think we're just I think it's coming to a head yeah because I feel like when I started college I had the freedom to to think what I want and my professors of course I I disagreed with them and maybe they said that's a dumb thing to believe I mean they literally said that's yeah. dumb but they didn't I don't know shame you right and now there was no public shaming. Tons of shame and guilt built yeah. into the culture right now. Yeah, yeah. so uh, maybe it's what happens with social media and I don't know. I think it's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's something to, to consider. And I think yeah. that's part of the benefit of the importance of philosophy. Yeah. That's why people should take these classes is because you're going to find out that you'll be challenged. And, it, yeah. you know, being, again, like I said, being a dad, a lot of people say that the most important thing is to have conversation at home yes. because it's a safe place so you can challenge thoughts without establishing the fact that a challenge means confrontation or hate right. or it That's good. doesn't change those things so then once they move 
into the real world, they can talk to people with conflicting ideas and not believe that it's going to result in a fight afterwards or something like that. Okay, that's a good point because I was talking maybe two years ago now with one of my classes. I had heard from a, 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 a very famous uh, professor that we're living in an age of feeling. And I mentioned this in some of my talks. Mm. And I didn't think we were. I'm like, no, we're not. And I mentioned it to my students and they said, yes, we are. And so I was talking to a colleague yesterday and I was, I was talking about how do I assess, because we do these assessments, how do I assess students learning to think analytically about their own assumptions? And I want them to learn how to go, these are my assumptions and I could look at them objectively. And she said, you know, you can't really do that because they identify themselves with their ideas. So when they're analyzing their assumptions, it's like, a criticism of themselves and I was like wow that's interesting I hadn't thought of that because I'm able to go this is my idea this isn't me right and maybe my idea is wrong and I want to throw it away because it's wrong right but I guess it's that's different a, I think that's a skill that's yeah. something that somebody has to teach you I don't think it's inherent to mm. people that somebody had to tell me that this is not you right so like working in the corporate world you put out an idea mm -hmm. people criticize it that's not you, right? And you can't yeah. get offended, you can't get defensive. You gotta work through the problem or the problem doesn't ever get fixed, right? And you have yeah. like real tangible financial stuff there. Yeah. But there's tons of people who aren't able to separate themselves from the concept. And I think that's a skill that has to be taught. Well then that's a skill I wanna teach you. <laughs> let's put the idea out here, disassociate yourself from the idea and let's look at it. What does it mean? Right. Thanks, yeah. I've learned something new. <laughs> there you I go. Love it. All right. <laughs> Some value added. Yeah. Um, okay, so you have um, a. Is it the. I'm going to call it the blog, right? You have a website mm -hmm. and it's on retrieval philosophy. Oh, yeah, that's my personal website. Okay. Yeah. And so is retrieval philosophy something that you kind of establish and this is like your term for something, or is this like a school of thought that you subscribe to? Well, I'll tell you a little story about this. Okay. Uh, when I finished my dissertation, I wanted to go more public um, because I'd been living in, you know, the academy, the school zone for so mm -hmm. many years. I thought, and I wrote my dissertation on public discourse, and I made this model, and I thought, I want to now use it. And I didn't know how to do that. And so I, I had a friend who... Um, he is into publishing and writing and so I met with him and he encouraged me to publish my dissertation and to write a blog and to get out more and uh, I told him what my dissertation was about and he said oh that reminds me of this thing called retrieval theology and I thought retrieval theology that sounds interesting and so he told me yeah you need to go read up on this and so retrieval theology was um, Contemporary theologians are going back into the past and retrieving some of the ideas of the, of the uh, like Thomas Aquinas mm -hmm. or the, the Reformation and using them now to address some of our questions that are, I guess, bothering people. And so I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. So I kind of, uh, it, it, from my friend uh, uh, Brian, who suggested this, I borrowed the retrieval philosophy from, the, from that movement in, in theology. And I was hoping it would catch on and my friends would do it, but um, I think my friends are like, no, I'm going to do renewal. 
philosophy. <laughs> like, all right, I get it. I get it because because we do need something new. But I I I coined that because I in my dissertation I was going back to Socrates to use some of the arguments he was mm-hmm. using to address problems that I'm seeing in philosophy today. And so I was retrieving some of his arguments for today. And so I thought, you know, you can do this. You can do a lot with this. Yeah. And so I'm always. Uh, thinking of new things to retrieve. I think I was in a conversation on Facebook with somebody and I said, ooh, I'm going to retrieve justice. We need to read the Republic, Plato's Republic and retrieve a concept of justice from that. It's really funny because we were just mentioning about how people are aware of history mm. and then mm-hmm. you're kind of yeah. building a whole philosophy around yeah. the idea that you got to learn history so that you don't repeat the exactly. same mistakes over and over exactly. and over again. And it kind of seems the same. Yes, I, I think that's... Part of why I thought the students should know history is because I'm kind of working on a five-year plan of yeah, a you history. You wouldn't have to retrieve that stuff if you knew history, right? Right. You wouldn't. You would because you didn't throw it off or you never had it Or on. you'd have to at least go, you know what? Something went wrong. Right. And we need to back up and see where we got off the rails. Right. And so uh, I am working on a, a five-year history plan on a kind of a history of reason or the logos, which is my favorite concept. It's a very rich concept, yes. but um, so yeah, I'm kind of passionate about the history of philosophy like and learning where the mistakes happened. So okay, that was going to be my next kind of question: is what value does that approach bring to the modern Joe Schmo who lives, works in a cube, things like that? Right, like not yeah, just the philosophy okay. student, but the well, let's talk about the modern Joe Schmo working in his cubicle. Is his life rich and full of meaning? Or is he like, I hate this. This is boring. I can't wait till the weekend. And I don't know, hanging out with my friends. Or I don't know. What does Joe Schmo do now? Gaming or something? I don't yeah, know. I don't, what, know what I don't know what they do now. I'm not hip anymore. But I feel like an understanding of the history of philosophy would also give you things like, hey, this is what... Um, this is what Aristotle and Plato thought the good life was about. And have you studied the history of the good life? Have you tried it on? Have you played with it? Have you seen its flaws and tried to remake it? Because there's something very human in that question. What is the good life? Is it a virtuous life? Is it a pleasurable life? Is it a meaningful life? Mm-hmm. And so I think we ask these questions, particularly when we're in the cubicle. I've had that job. Yes. And you're like, what am I doing with my life? I ask that question every day. Every day, right? What's yeah. the point of this? <laughs> And not just this cubicle job, but this whole existence that seems pretty hard a lot of the time. Right. And we're suffering often, and it's like, why do I get out of bed every day? So I think um, philosophy, a real rich understanding of it, gives you the options for answering that question, and hopefully you find the true answer. I think there is a true answer. I have colleagues and friends that are like, no, there's no true answer. There's just a lot of different narratives. Um, But... I think there's a narrative that probably connects more closely to reality than others do. Right, and I think there is, what comes of it is awareness too, right? So we yes. do coffee, beer, and wine, right? And we're getting ready to do our Cicerone certification, which is a beer server, right? Ooh. So it's like, a you're certified to talk, you know what you're talking about, about beer, right? Ooh. Never did anything like that so I just drank beer and you're like oh this one's good this one's bad and then now as we start studying and you're like oh this one has this and it does that it was brewed this way and so this assessment of the product leads to a greater appreciation of it 
right? Exactly. And so if you can examine your own life and you're looking at these things and you're saying, I get value from this, I get happiness from this, I get energy from these. Yes. Then you can do those things that make you happy versus, you know, addictive behavior of turning the brain off. Right. Trying to run from pain. You can exactly enjoy a richness, like you said, in life. I love this just- example. Can I jump on this? Because I like coffee a lot. And I order my coffee from a, a place in Bisbee. Every month they send me different mm-hmm. coffees. Bisbee Roasters, yeah. Mm-hmm. Bisbee Roasters. And I, I love learning. They have like a description. This yes. is what you'll taste. And mm-hmm. I'm like, this is amazing. But it's not just like I need coffee for the caffeine. It's like I want to enjoy what is unique about this coffee and understand what makes it unique. So it's, it is very philosophical. In, I'm sure wine and beer are the same right. because you're understanding the essence of that thing the nature of the thing and and it's the understanding the knowing that makes humans happy my dog is not going to enjoy things the way i as a human enjoy things and there's an intellectual quality to that enjoyment yeah so i think um yeah like you're saying being more aware of yourself and the world will bring about a certain kind of knowledge of things and that's what makes humans happy or so say i go try it out right and happiness ultimately is one of the goods it's, right it's like, the effect yeah of possessing the good i love it and so that there's value enough right there just to gain the analytical skills yeah. so take your philosophy 101 class at least right yeah. when you're in college yes at minimum do that yes so uh you had mentioned publishing right and so just recently you actually published a book right yeah so congratulations on that thank it's, you publishing a book is not easy regardless of what anybody says it's very hard it, it there's a skill set there that i have to say i think so many years of graduate work prepared me for you because you have to in graduate school I'm you sure. have to learn how to uh you have to learn how to format. You have to learn how to edit. You learn this certain skill set. So, um, uh, actually, the publishing company was born in this coffee shop at that round table right over there. Nice. Um, I, I, okay, I wrote my dissertation, and I knew I wanted to publish it because I had put so many years of work into this, and I thought it was worth putting out there. But um, I, I took a year to, to research different publishers and what they were publishing, and I just wasn't happy. Uh, mostly because I wrote a book against skepticism and trying to argue that knowledge is possible, and most of the things coming out of academic publishers right now right. are saying the opposite. And that's because that's what's selling, and so they're going to manage the trends. People are going to write the trends so that it sells. Right. Yeah. And so I thought, you know what? I'm probably not the only person in this boat, mm-hmm. and... I don't want to just self-publish. I could do that, and that is a big trend right now. But um, I don't need to publish for my job. I don't have to publish. No, okay, I'm for not, community college, you don't no, have to publish? No. Oh, wow. My, my uh, I guess, skill set that they want me to grow is teaching and learning. So I don't have to publish. In fact, I think they probably don't encourage it. But... I have a, a side of me that wants to write and has a lot of books in my head. So um, I decided to start my own publishing company because I, I know there are other people mm-hmm. that have a similar outlook and want to publish as well. 
And so I thought my dissertation would be the um, the guinea pig. Right. I'd find all the, the bumps and problems publishing my own thing, and, and I did. It was a learning experience. It was pretty rough, uh, especially the typesetting. I don't have that skill set yet, so I had to hire someone, but even when they did it, I saw problems. I, I mean, I know what a book should look like. Right. And uh, now I'm, I'm taking some courses to learn that skill set. But I, I have published two of my own books, one of a good, good friend, and uh, another... Uh, lady uh, philosopher her ebook i have some others lined up but it's been a, a really good process and i feel like once we get our maybe name recognition a little bit there might be others who want to publish so i'll probably have to grow the business at that point because i'm doing everything right now i mean i hire out i can i can hire a right. typesetter i can hire an editor but there's a lot that goes on with publishing a book yes yes there is yeah. I, I did. A, I published two short stories, and nice. they're not. You know, I'm not going to encourage anybody to read them, right? No, I actually would, but it, it they're not good, right? They're part of the growth. They'll get better, but just like you said, formatting and things like this, you think you could just YouTube it or Google it? No. That's not true. Like you can, no. and you can put stuff out, but for it to be good, yeah, or even like presentable, because there's. Especially when you're in an area of, like the book, the stories that I wrote were in a much forgiving audience, right? You're probably going to be dealing with a much higher scrutiny level yeah. than I was, right? And so you yeah. really do have to pay attention to everything because yeah. as soon as there's like a line offset yeah. a little bit, be like, oh, this is garbage because of yeah, chintzy. Like, right. Okay, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that of my own. I, I look at my book and I see some problems, and I'm like, oh man, next time we're gonna have to do that differently, right? I'm about to put a journal out, and I, maybe I'm a perfectionist in a way, but I see problems that I can't fix because I'm limited to what the technology can do right. because I don't understand the advanced technology yet. Right. And so I just, I'm stuck right now. Do I, do I just let some of these flaws go knowing that not everybody's going to see it, or do I hire somebody and pay right. big bucks? The, my experience in the self-publishing is that as long as you're showing growth most audiences will give grace it's when you stop showing growth yeah. that they stop giving grace so yeah. like as long That's as like good. this book is good the next one is a little bit better the next one's a little bit better both in quality and content yeah. right the audience will follow along yeah. as soon as they just see you cranking out garbage you know yeah. like you're just throwing crap at them then they're, they're we have like, okay, great I'm content not. i will not let bad content get out there <laughs> exactly but yeah, I think you're right. Okay, so the the book last book was Reason and Proper Function, right? That was the most yes. recent one. So give me a, a premise, okay. an idea, just that. Reason and Proper Function is a response to Alvin Plantinga. This is a book that was my master's thesis okay. in philosophy. And what had happened is, uh, do you want the funny story or do you want like a serious story? Well, Here's the fun, the answer is yes. The funny story is this. <laughs> uh, I wrote this dis, I, this uh, thesis, and, and when I wrote it, it was a, a very tough thing to write because my professors were very critical of the, of the paper. And uh, the, disserta- the thesis defense was really rough. It was two hours. It was grueling. But I made it. Uh, and then I put that paper away for 20 years because... It was not my favorite experience. 
But uh, as I was learning typesetting, I needed a, a large document in Word to upload to practice on. So I uploaded this because it was the largest document I had. And I started editing it and reading it. And I was like, this was pretty good. In fact, this is really good. And I know some students right now that are struggling through the questions in this book. And so the, the book is about um, Alvin Plantinga's theory of knowledge. He thinks that uh, the traditional definition of knowledge uh, that is justified true belief is not necessary. So he comes up with a new um, definition of knowledge and he calls it uh, warranted true belief. So I tried to show in my book that he is sharing some assumptions with the person who brought a critique on the original definition of knowledge. He, they share the same assumptions and that we don't need to come up with a new definition of knowledge because the assumptions that, that they're addressing are flawed. And so he goes, Edmund Gettier is another philosopher who said, justified true belief is not sufficient. It's not good enough to give us knowledge. And so Alvin Plantinga seems to be responding to him, saying, we don't even need that definition. Here's a better one. And I'm saying, whoa, guys, the way you're def defining knowledge may be problematic because you're assuming certain things that maybe would never deliver knowledge. For example, they say that um, knowledge is through our senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Um, I try to argue in both my books that's not the case. Knowledge is through reason. And so um, this, this newer book, I just critique one piece of Alvin Plantinga's definition, and it's about proper function. And I try to argue that um, the laws of thought, reason, the laws of thought, can never malfunction. Only our use of them can go bad. So it's a very, okay. very narrow-focused little book. Right. And probably no one will read it, but I wrote it for students who were like me, who are struggling with this problem because they throw it at you. Mm -hmm. This is like, look, you can't really know. And then the students go, oh no, nobody can really know. And then they go off and teach that for the rest of their life. <laughs> and I was just thinking, this is bad, so I don't want that to happen. Plus it's something I had to fight for like three years of my life through, right. you know? So That was I, gonna be my question was, how long was this book in the making? And it was? Three years. Okay. That one's three years. The other one's about 20 years though. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay, right? Yeah. So, before we go on to the last part, I want to throw this at you because we're just talking senses and knowledge and things like that. So I had a professor give me a line. So when I was in college, I, uh, and I'm still kind of obsessed with it, but I, I think I'm satisfied on the Trinity, right? And it's hard to define how Trinity works. Right. right. And so one of the responses that I got was that you experience more than you know, and you know more than you can articulate. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. So I would like to get your thought on that. Okay. I, I know. I, this I, I is totally a great question. You by no, this no. I, right I actually now. wrote a paper on this for a person who used to be the president of Grand Canyon University. He, uh, I was his research assistant for a while, Dr. Williams. And he asked me, go to this paper, research this. The ex The... Uh, the accessible but not expressible and the expressible but not accessible. So there are things that we, uh, we can't express but we know and things that we, uh, we know but, I don't know, that we can access but it's hard to tell. So I kind of think 
Yes and no. Uh, I have a very focused definition of knowledge, and I got it from Plato. Lots of people don't like this, but uh, knowledge is a true belief that's tied down with an account, and an account is a, a reason, not just like I saw it, I smelled it, but like an argument, right. a rational argument. And uh, I think if we use knowledge that way, if I have an argument, I can tell you my argument. Otherwise, it's just a belief, which is something I hold to. I think it's true. So I think in that very focused definition of knowledge, if you know it, you can show it by demonstration. But people use the word know in a lot of different senses, and there's this knowledge by acquaintance. Like, I know what this wine tastes like, but I can't express that to you, right? right? So there's a knowledge by acquaintance that I can't share with you. I like because yeah, I call it in my brain. I call it experiential data. Mm-hmm. So or, yeah, there's tons of people who are instinct. And I have old cowboys in my family that look up. They're like, oh, it's gonna storm. You know, yes. Like, there's nothing okay. that tells me that, but they have done this for so long, and they yes. have this, and they they've experienced so many things that they have yes. this knowledge from there, but they can't articulate so these things. Always that is helpful in certain contexts, like knowing when a monsoon s- storm is about to hit, but it. It's not the kind of thing that is sought after in philosophy. So philosophy is particularly interested in knowledge about things like what is ultimate reality like? What is the good life? What is justice? And knowledge by acquaintance doesn't help us answer that. So if I say, oh, my experience of justice is that people are uh, ultimately self-centered and and, uh, out for power, That doesn't answer the question. That's just my experience, right? Maybe my experience is very limited. Um, So in philosophy, we're looking for something more objective and objectively shareable. Like if I say, I know this is true, you can say, prove it. And we're trying to get at something that is not just true for me. Like it's true for me that coffee from uh, Roasters of Cave Creek is good. But uh, that's not really applicable to things like it's true for me that the table is here, right? right? That's a different category. Right. It's not about taste or opinion. It's about reality. And that's what we're looking for in philosophy. Okay. So then if you experience something and you believe it, the goal should be to pursue it more so that you can't articulate it. Well, how about this? I believe this is true. I need to figure out if it's really true. And if it's really true, I'll have a way of proving it and this belief is true because the opposite and the alternatives are not true that's how socrates does philosophy he looks at the alternatives and he rules them out he says all right let's let's go with this uh in the in the the uh dialogue the republic he he talks about what is justice and he asks the the people who are with him what do you think is justice and one guy says oh justice is the uh what the powerful people say Whatever the powerful person says is just, then is just. And he's like, okay, let's test that out. And so he tests out the options, the possibilities, and he's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And so I think that's a way of, of approaching knowledge, by looking at claims people make and testing them, and testing them through reason, not experience. Um, I guess experience does come in, but we have to go, does that contradict itself anywhere is there a contradiction here and if it's a contradiction it can't be true 
So how does that, so bringing it back towards a concept like the Trinity, right? Okay. You're talking yeah. like eternal. You're talking right. almost beyond comprehension. Like if we're finite, that's eternal. Okay. Like, can you pin it? Like I feel, right? I'm going to use some, some feel emotion yeah, yeah. aged words here yes. that, you know, I've had these experiences. And so the Trinity makes sense to me because in my personal experience, I say, okay, yeah, this okay. idea matches my experience but you okay know, so that makes sense so then how do you take something like the trinity and then formulate like logical arguments this is to justify a really something like that great example and i love that you brought up the trinity because it's hard <laughs> doing some retrieval theology uh, if you go back and look at the history of how the trinity the doctrine of the trinity came about uh it was through logic basically hashing out through a lot of discussion over like a hundred years, mm-hmm. what does it mean to say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? One God, three persons. And so in the history of theology, they worked that out through this process of discussion and applying philosophy to this idea. It's in scripture, but it's not it's not a doctrine that is right. just there. You have to you have to use reason to infer that doctrine. And uh, I would say that the, given the, the Christian worldview, the doctrine of the Trinity makes perfect sense. But outside that worldview, it doesn't make any sense. Super, yes. So okay. using philosophy, going back to foundational beliefs, you have to establish, A, God exists, and uh, you have to get to the nature of God, and I would say before you even do anything from Scripture, get to the necessity of Scripture and get to this idea of a fall and redemption and how is God going to bring about redemption? How does God create? How does God redeem? And uh, how does God prepare a people? So there's a lot of ideas there that are even before you get to, let's say, the New Testament. So I think... This is my, I guess, hobby horse, someone mm-hmm. called it once, that you have to do general revelation before you can do special revelation. You have to do natural theology before you can do you know, biblical theology and get those big ideas in place, like the nature of God and the, na- the nature of the creation, full redemption. And then how, what's this whole, what is scripture for? Scripture is, is for the redemption of humanity. So if you don't believe that there's a God or that there's a fall or a need for redemption, then the Trinity isn't going to make any sense. Right. So there's a lot of prior assumptions that go into this idea of the doctrine of the Trinity and the necessity of the Trinity in Christianity. Hmm. Did I get anywhere near No, I answer? love it totally because, okay. again... I feel like we're coming full circle again on the importance of history. Yes. Right? So when I was studying, I studied most of my time in early Christianity. So my, mm-hmm. my patron is Athanasius, right? He was my favorite. So he's council forged. Took mm-hmm. two more councils to finalize the Trinity. But yeah. I mean, like, that was the heat of it. Yes. And uh, so he was my favorite in that era. And, and that era was so rich, I thought, in conversation. Like, yeah. There was yes. there's still some Roman mob stuff going on, but there was lots of really hard theology going on it was less about social justice and more about like these are the internal questions that they were yes and so yes i like that a lot 
So and the that eternal was a very questions. Self-serving in me asking. I love it. No, it's a great because I think it did bring together a lot of pieces. That logic applies to theology. That if we don't understand history, then we aren't going to be able to answer those kinds of questions. It's not like the doctrine of the Trinity is a new thing, but for young people just learning about it, it is new. Mm-hmm. And so, how to get a background? rich full background to those young people so that they go oh i don't have to rethink this people have already shown me the reasoning process that went into the doctrine of the trinity and it isn't a violation of of logic Uh, it's not saying one god three gods saying one god three persons and then you could you could read about that what have the best minds in christianity said about that it's it's really and and of course there's this uh, incomprehensibility aspect like we'll never know God as God knows himself so we can try to get our head around it and grow in that but that's the exciting part about being human you right. get to grow in your understanding mm, for the rest awesome. of your life right and that's kind of I like that because it's part of being teacher and part of the education system yeah the reason why we have school in place is for each generation to make the next generation better, right? To build yeah. on the shoulders of those that came before yes. us, things like that, and continue it and grow it, stuff like yes. that. Yes. I love it. So thank you for answering that for me. Thanks um, for asking it. <laughs> and this is why I do philosophy. And literally, this, what we're doing right now, is why I do this. It, it feels good. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. So to, in conclusion, if there was a life lesson that in your lived experience you would say you know what if I could pass this one thing on to someone this is the most important thing I would want to pass on what would your life lesson be I think my the the hardest thing that I had to learn as a a young person but I don't think it's just young people it's it's every human I had to learn that there is meaning to life and not just to my individual life that I made up, there is an objective purpose to life. And we have uh, a limited time on earth to do something meaningful, to contribute to what I call the human project. We're not just individuals in the void doing our thing and then you die. We're human beings doing a human project and that is developing all of our abilities in ourself for a larger goal and so we need to figure out that larger goal and I would encourage people to pursue that goal it's not just oh I need to make a bunch of money and then die Mm -hmm. it's hey maybe my contribution is to the human project and the human project is understanding reality every aspect of it if it means understanding the nature of the grape and developing a really great wine so that we can have this conversation and enjoy that wine then then that's part of it so my uh I guess my, from my experience, I would say go find your talent, connect it to the goal of the human project, which is knowing ultimate reality in every aspect, if it's computer programming or coffee or philosophy or whatever you're doing, connect it to knowledge and I think uh, you will provide meaning for other humans. Which adds tons of value to your Tons of value. Well. Yes. And, uh, I love that. That's really good. Yeah, so we I call like this to, the good. I would like to read that in a book, please. I, I teach this class <laughs> called Ethics, and we talk about the good. 
Yeah, I'll try to write that in a book. Well, because, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, everybody's looking for that, right? Right. The meaning. What's right. What's the purpose, the why. I mean, right. And everybody's and, got and different perspectives. This is great. The why, uh, I was at convocation at PVCC the other day. This is like where they bring all the faculty together and they're like, or the whole school actually. Okay, this is a new school year and today, this year we're going to focus on the why. Why are we here at this college and what are we doing? And I thought, that's what I do every single day, the why. But another local philosopher, uh, his name is Peter Redpath. I became friends with him. He's a retired philosopher. He uh, talks about the one and the many. And this is what the early philosophers talked about. You need to find that unity that brings together all the diversity. And this is true of not just like a business. Like what is the unifying goal of this business? Or what is the unifying goal of this publishing company? Or even this book? Or even this talk that we're having? But what is the unifying principle of of the human race, if you want to call it that? The human species. Because if we have a nature, then there's a goal for that nature. And that's what we call the good. Mm, I do too. It feels good. It feels good. It is good. That's why. Yeah. Well, why don't you let everybody know where to find you and how to engage with you because that's a big part. I know that's a big part of what you do. Um, Well, my personal website is retphi.com, like retphiretrievalphilosophy.com. I'll link it too. And I have a about page on there where I have links to my Amazon page where my books are to my um, Facebook and Twitter and all the social media stuff, but also to the public-philosophy.com site where we list all the um, public philosophy events in Phoenix that I know about. And it's like a hub for public philosophy. This is my thing, getting out and doing philosophy for, for normal people. And uh, that has a lot of events. It has the podcast, the Public Philosophy Podcast. It has videos from past events. And it also links to the Public Philosophy Society, which is something we're trying to get going. It's a Patreon page. So you have to be a member. You have to sign up. But students can sign up for a dollar a month. It's very reasonable. I looked at the price. Yes. I was like, it's... And so what you get with that is... um, Membership to a, a professional society, but you also get monthly meetings online, live online through Zoom, and we are uh, bringing in philosophy professors. Hopefully, we'll bring in some famous philosophers eventually. We're trying to get used to the technology and the format before we invite someone big in, but uh, we have monthly discussions. Um, someone presents for 20 minutes, and then whoever's in the meeting gets to ask questions and discuss. And it's we had our first meeting; it was really, really smooth, fun. We had about 12 people yeah, show up. That's not bad yeah. at all. It was very fun. So I invite you to join that if you're interested in conversing. Or follow Brandon. I think he's doing some good conversations. <laughs> you're making me blush. <laughs> all right. All right. I guess with that, we'll say adieu. Adieu. Thank you once again for listening to the Inkledo podcast. If you enjoyed what we had to say on this and you think other people might as well, then we'd really appreciate it if you'd help us out. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, any of the social media profiles, and please make sure to go ahead and share this link and this episode on your own social media. Thank you so much. Thank you.